This is the story of how I got my first dream job as a professional artist in a video game studio and then lost it six months later. That first job, that first foot in the door, is it's such a magical thing. It really feels like at the time it's impossible. And that's kind of how it felt like it was to me. This was an impossible task. I didn't really know how I was going to do it, but I really just wanted to be a professional artist. At the time, there was a huge amount of advice on how to get a job, how to get a job in games, be a creative professional. I think there's probably more advice out there now. There were people saying all sorts of things, including don't do it. Hey, you know, don't do this. Um, you know, there was a lot of jaded people out there who either, you know, had worked in these industries or were going to work in these industries. It was really hard to know what to expect and what to do. The time period in question here is in the early 2000s, and that environment is very different to what we have today. So my experience is not necessarily going to overlay with yours if you're looking to get a job right now in video games, especially your first. But I think it's really interesting to hear these stories, and certainly I listened to a lot of other people's stories when I was trying to figure this out. So my hope here is that through sharing my story here, I can you know give you a bit of information because I think the real thing is when you see sort of what works now and what worked 20 years ago and what worked 20 years before that, it's a really good way to get a very good understanding of kind of how these things work, how you do get jobs, what's likely to happen, what are the things you should do, what are the things you shouldn't do, and what should you expect. I certainly noticed a few really interesting things when I did get this job that completely blew me away. And again, if you stick around to the end, I'll also share with you some, some really basic kind of high-level tips and thoughts on this idea of how to get a job. to the Visual Scholar Podcast. My name's Tim McBurney. I've been a professional working artist for over 20 years. And on this show, we're all about demystifying the worlds of art, creativity, and productivity so that you can get better faster and enjoy your artistic journey. All right, so bear with me. A little bit of history is probably useful because that will give context to this story and this sort of time in video games. Now, I grew up, without video games right early on. Um, but, you know, when I was really young, I started playing a lot of video games on the Commodore 64 and, you know, Sega Master System. I had a Nintendo, all of that stuff. So I kind of grew up uh, in a little bit of that 80s retro kind of, you know, we didn't really have computers, but, you know, as I grew older, we started to have computers. So these things were really interesting. The idea of working in video games for me was not something I had really considered as a possibility. Um, because it just wasn't the kind of career that you saw a lot of. But nevertheless, I wanted to be a writer um, initially, and I got into sort of art and drawing. And I think mostly people responded well to my art in, in some ways, and that's sort of maybe what gave me the desire to kind of pursue it. I come from Adelaide, Australia. There's not a lot of good opportunities to learn how to draw. I kind of wanted to draw comics because I'd always grew up reading Asterix and Tintin and a whole bunch of different comics. I kind of learned to read doing that. And again, you know, I just liked fantasy. I liked other worlds, right? The escapism that comes from kind of drawing. But I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't really have any good opportunity or, or any sort of plan there. I was either going to become an environmental lawyer or an artist or something, right? I really had no idea, as I'm sure a lot of people can relate to. 
back in those days, there really weren't that many concept artists because games were really basic in their visual representation. And, you know, I would say not every studio had a lot of high-end concept art. It wasn't a, a major job description um, at that time. It's something I think that all games kind of needed, but they didn't all have. So I really was, you know, not looking at this as a job for ultimate creative expression, um, but it was just something that seemed really fun that I wanted to do. So as I said, at the time, I was sort of floating around a little bit. I think as we often do when we're trying to figure out what we actually want to do. I wanted to be an illustrator. I kind of had these dreams, again, of being a freelance artist because coming from the era that I was looking at, it was the heroes that I had were people like Frank Frazetta, these kind of heroic illustrators. And a lot of them kind of had their little studio. These were comic book artists. And most of those positions are freelance. You're doing, you know, one job here, one job there. And they always just had this studio that was often, you know, somewhere or at their house. And to some reason, that was kind of my dream. The idea of going in and working at an office was not necessarily kind of something that I had in my head, but nevertheless, again, I was kind of floating around and I wasn't really sure what to do. I knew I wanted to draw, but I didn't know whether I wanted to draw comics or be an illustrator or again, work in video games. And I didn't really even know how to start any of these things. I'd never really worked a proper job. I have no idea how to work a cash register or do any hospitality. I never stacked food at a supermarket. I was always just in starving artist mode. I wanted to be an artist and that's kind of what I did. And I was living and breathing this. But again, the idea of a job was, you know, a little bit intimidating in general. But much of that kind of disappeared when I quit my art school and I was floating around and I was completely broke and I had no prospects. It was very challenging at that time to just be a freelancer in Australia because, again, we're, you know, geologically removed from the rest of the world. It's, you know, not necessarily possible to go and meet people and do all that stuff that was really necessary. The internet was only just starting to really come online as a possibility for that. So, again, you know, I was in this weird position and I knew that there was one studio that was really big in Adelaide. It was called Ratbag Games. They had made a really good game called Power Slide and uh, Dirt Track Racing. And they were basically a racing car simulation, um, you know, kind of dirt track racing developer. And I was, uh, you know, sort of looking at that and it felt like, look, that looks cool. But, you know, I'm not really into racing games. I wasn't really into cars at that point in time. I wanted to do fantasy stuff. So even though that was there, it didn't really seem like it was a perfect fit. And this was a mythic studio. This was like Adelaide's, you know, greatest and, you know, maybe one of Australia's, you know, top developers, um, if not, you know, its top developer at that time. It was a really, really big deal. And again, just that sort of thing didn't really seem to fit. But as I got poorer and poorer and my options seemed to dwindle more and more, the idea of, again, just getting a job in a video game studio started to appeal to me more and more. And I really tried to and started to look at this opportunity a little bit better. But 
Still, the question was, how do I actually get my work there, right? They weren't always advertising for jobs and there wasn't a lot of, you know, ways to actually get in there. It was hard to know. I just don't think I was the kind of person to go and, you know, knock on the door and be one of those crazy people who just goes and talks to people. Again, introverted artist. The whole idea of, you know, bridging that gap was, you know, its own complete mystery. And I think that's a really important point because in the beginning, the gap between us and a professional environment seems like so large. It seems completely insurmountable. It's like, here's me and there's them. There's all the professionals. Um, now, obviously, it's a little bit different, right? It's a little bit easier to have conversations, to email people and say, hey, you know, do you want to do some work? I've done all this stuff. Back then, it seemed like there was this giant wall between me and them. That was until my aunt started dating a Ukrainian musician. Now, I forget this guy's name exactly, but he was a musician and he was from Ukraine and he had actually sort of migrated to Australia with a bunch of other Ukrainian people who had all been working at a video game studio and he was a composer who had worked in video games in Ukraine and he knew a whole bunch of people who worked at Ratbag. My memory is pretty vague on the specifics but my general understanding is maybe similar to today. Ukraine had a lot of troubles earlier on and it was, you know, through the success of working on those games that these people managed to migrate to Australia and again, you know, potentially escape some of that stuff. So either way, he knew some people who worked at Ratbag and he got me the all important sort of interview with them. And I thought at this point I had hit the jackpot, right? This is one of these things you can never ever imagine happening. It's just completely random. It just comes out of the blue and it strikes like lightning. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Maybe that will go somewhere. So I felt like I had the inside track, the thing you always need, which is contacts. It's the networking, the social contact. And, you know, he put me in contact with one of his friends who I think was actually a senior 3D modeler uh, called Victor. And Victor was a really, really nice guy, very, very talented 3D modeler. And, you know, at that time, you know, a real sort of a veteran, right? He'd worked in video games for quite a while and really knew a lot of stuff. Um, his English was not that good, but we had a lunch um, sort of meeting and I felt like, again, everything was going well. He took my folio and he was going to give it to the art directors at Ratback. It's probably worth noting that as part of this process of me sort of contemplating working in video games, I did start to, you know, look a lot into how video games were made. It's not like I was just some sort of silly 2D artist, right, who just wanted to do illustrations. I, you know, was very, very... Uh, much into, you know, all of the 3D stuff that was happening at the time. I would read magazines about 3D, about game development. I'd be, you know, reading a lot of, uh, you know, information on the internet about how these things were made, looking at modeling tutorials for, you know, Quake mods, etc. And I was, you know, using 3D Studio Max. So, you know, again, I was very serious about working in games. I kind of made that pivot to a little bit. And uh, I still wasn't really sure how it would happen, but it, it probably was that time where I sort of started, sort of was like, okay, I'm really broke. I don't have any options. Maybe games are the way to kind of, you know, get a job as a creative professional. And, you know, I had kind of started to really look into what that was about. 
and try and create some some 3D stuff to put in my folio. But it was all really terrible and was certainly far, far removed from anything that could be conceived production ready. So I was not a 3D artist and there was no way I would be applying as a 3D artist or really be able to do that work. Maybe if they kind of taught me this was the era that's kind of a magical era where you could be a little bit crap, right? You could be a very average artist and, you know, you were the best of whoever else was there. And so studios would often take you in and teach you how to use these things, teach you how to, you know, work in a production environment. But Again, for the most part, I didn't really have anything that in my folio besides kind of passion and sort of showing like, hey, I've been doing this thing in 3D Studio Max. It's probably all wrong. Um, but again, at least I was trying. So the reason I mentioned that is I was able to, you know, have a conversation with, uh, you know, this guy, Victor, about, you know, what they were building and, you know, what the poly counts were on the models they were creating, you know, and that trying to figure out like, you know, what kind of skills should, should I build? You know, what kind of stuff do you need? And, you know, maybe again, it is that stuff where, you know, I had the strategy that was, you know, putting all those things into place. I don't think they were particularly good, but again, it was obvious, I think, hopefully that I was kind of excited and really keen at the time. Now, Another thing that I kind of had in the back of my mind is at that point I was 19 and I'd always heard these stories of like people who get hired right in their teens and it seemed like a good idea to kind of get hired really early because I think often it just kind of signaled to me that like I was kind of, you know, like a, a young gun, right? And, and I had a lot of opportunity and, and that to me meant something. But also I think there is the potential that that did mean something, right? That if you are just some kid and you're really sort of keen and excited, I think that is one of the best sort of marketing tools you can have because there's a lot of energy that maybe older art directors and people who've been working for ages get from working with someone who's really excited about working in you know their industry, in games, in how this stuff is made, and they want to learn, right? And they're going to listen. So you know maybe that was a factor as well, right? I, I wasn't that good. But, you know, maybe I was better than, you know, most of the other people in Adelaide. And I think I was definitely trying to communicate at the time on all wavelengths that like I was really keen, right? I'm going to learn anything like whatever, you know, whatever it is, please give me a job. Please, please, please give me a job. So anyway, I didn't hear anything at all for about it felt like it would have been three to six months. I just heard absolutely nothing. And, you know, maybe I think I, I tried to ask you know, through the grapevine, like what's going on? You know what I mean? Do I, do I, do I have a job? Like, uh, do I get an interview? Like what's happening? I kind of imagine this would be like a magical thing, right? Um, you know, it's like, Hey, I'm obviously here. You know, you need someone, someone's going to call me the next day. Uh, and it didn't happen. It was months and months and months of just absolute complete silence. But eventually I did get an interview and I sat down with people there and this was a really weird experience, but I think I had that kind of blind, youthful um, ignorance where I just kind of went in there and didn't really care about much and didn't really know what you should or shouldn't do in an interview. Um, and that's generally kind of how I would do this stuff in most things in my life. And uh, I felt like that interview went really, really well. It felt like to me, like I, I, ha I already had the job, right? Like that's how it felt like the interview went, um, which could just be complete delusion. But again, it felt like the interview itself went, went really well. They were basically kind of saying like, we need you to do this. Can you do this? You know, we've seen your folio. Um, and, and I was just kind of like, you know, when are you going to call me? Right. Um, you know, that's kind of how well it went. 
Then I think it must have been, again, it feels like it was months. Maybe it was just a month. It was a long time after that that I actually got a call saying, like, you kind of have a job. Like, yes, we want to offer you a job. This is the kind of job that I was going to get. And it was like a very low level, basically apprentice texture job, right? I was going to be creating very, very simple textures for the game. Then 9-11 happened. And this was right in the middle of me, you know, maybe having a job, but look, not actually being in the office, right? Not having a contract, let's say. And 9-11 happened and I just was not sure what was going to happen to the world, to America. I knew that a lot of the, you know, publishing money and, and contracts and stuff like that were American, right? That's most of the time been the case. Um, one of the sort of producers that I had been talking to was American and he migrated from Australia as well. And, you know, so I just wasn't sure, like maybe this thing wasn't going to happen. It was very, very uncertain times then. But eventually it did happen. Three to six months later into the process through having interviews and getting a job and then not hearing anything. Again, six months after that, I was actually in the office. I was actually sitting there. I was working as a professional game developer, as an artist on a AAA game. They were developing a completely new creator-owned IP. This was a first-person shooter, open-world um, sort of racing game, and it was going to come out on PlayStation 2. They had publishing deals set up. This was amazing. I had finally made it. Again, I was working on a AAA game for a new next-generation console. I was not quite 19. I just turned 20, so I'd kind of failed on that. But everything else was coming up millhouse. So, but as I've mentioned in previous episodes and earlier on, six months into my contract, that project got dropped. The publisher said no um, for whatever reason. And look, it all just disappeared and my job disappeared with it. Everything kind of crumbled and I was back exactly where I started. I'd gotten my first taste of actually working in a studio though, and I learned a lot. The first few weeks and months were really rough. I had no idea what I was doing. The whole concept of being in an office, talking to people, collaborating, this was a massive challenge. And, and looking back, this is one of the main things that um, I'm really happy that, uh, you know, when we built a school in Adelaide, the concept design workshop, and I kind of was, you know, like a, a part of sort of conceiving of uh, a lot of the curriculum and, and trying to figure out, like, how do we get people ready for these industries? Um, you know, one of the things we really try and do is, is make sure that people are kind of at least a little bit more ready than I was for the first week or month, just in terms of the pace, what's expected. It was really terrifying the degree to which all my skill and talent kind of disappeared when I was in there. Just through the simple fact that like other people were watching me draw, right? I was sitting at a desk and it wasn't my desk anymore. It wasn't me sitting in my comfy little arrangement. Um, you know, people were walking behind me. People were talking here and there. The whole thing threw me off and it was very hard to me to actually, you know, put any power to the ground and, and you know, come up with stuff. I did a range of things that when I learned a lot about video games um, and how they were created and again, just the culture of a studio. So it's not like that time was for nothing. I feel like I learned more in those six months than, you know, I learned in the next year, um, you know, or, you know, the previous year. 
But again, it probably wasn't really heading me where I wanted to go. And that was sort of something that was also very useful is I had the job, I had the career, but again, I knew that what I really wanted to do was illustration, was 2D art. And I'd kind of been able to do a little bit of concept design there, but mostly what they were paying me to do was texture art. So I was creating little decals um, and, you know, working with level designers to create texture packs for, you know, all of the 3D worlds they were building. And again, this was all very interesting, but it wasn't ultimately the thing that I wanted to do. And I got to do a little bit of concept art there, but not enough. And again, the whole thing was a little bit frustrating because I think to do good concept art, you also need to be in a pipeline that really respects and understands that as well. And this is one of the interesting things about that early game development is a lot of concept art was kind of just people getting a ref or mood board and then just kind of telling people to go at it. There wasn't often a real consideration of that high level art direction. Like what do we want it to look like? It was very tricky to, you know, even add a color grade, you know, post-processing it was very hard to make the games look good, let's be frank. A lot of them didn't look that good. They weren't visually um, pleasing. And, you know, it was very hard to fit into that. So anyway, I kind of knew that, like, look, this was interesting, but I wasn't cut. I, this wasn't the end of the world for me. Um, but, yeah, definitely it was a huge shock to, to have that happen and, you know, something that, again, really taught me a lot about the industry in general because that's not just some random uh, event. You know, that's something that happened to a lot of people and keeps happening to a lot of people. And I feel like, again, that was probably maybe the best lesson that I learned overall. Video games are extremely volatile and it's very easy to lose your job in the blink of an eye. I did keep up to date with what was going on at Ratbag Games and people showed me around a few times. I got to see what they were working on. It was very exciting and I was actually kind of close to, you know, going back and maybe getting another sort of full-time job there. In 2005, they were purchased by Midway Games. And again, this whole process of being able to see inside a studio, how it functions, really helped me because get to see how these things are put together, how games are made. And that helped me a lot when I was freelancing. I learned a lot of really, really important lessons about how companies were built. I also heard that one late December, a Midway executive flew to Adelaide, Australia to put the entire company under the knife just in time for Christmas bonus. He flew there, completely gutted the company and fired every single person on the spot. That is the story of how I got my first job, how I lost it, and then how I saw my job lose its job. So normally I like to do takeaways to take my amorphous set of thoughts and try and turn them into some practical takeaway, some advice that we can use, some advice that maybe you can use. In this case, what I want to do is really talk about the takeaways that I actually did take away from that experience because I certainly did learn a lot and I did use it to build my career going forward again over the subsequent 20 years. And I still remember a lot of those things that are very fundamental and they're at the basis of a lot of the career advice that I give people to this day. If we look at the analytical takeaway, again, one of my favorites, the first thing that I just want to underline is I really do believe that getting a job, any job, but I think especially the first job is very much, as I have said, a mix of kind of luck and skill. It's more about putting yourself in an optimal position and then waiting for a good wave of opportunity to arrive and then 
surfing that wave, riding that wave and seeing where it goes. Um, there's never any linear progression to this. As you see, if you listen to this story, again, it's kind of, um, there were some good things, some bad things. Um, it was, you know, far more dramatic than I feel like it should, it should need to be, right? But again, a lot of this is in retrospect. When you're in the moment, it feels to me much more like there's luck and like I don't have control of my sort of situation. But the way I have learned to get control is again through continually trying to put myself in good positions, let's say, and then look for opportunity. I think that basic idea that was really clear to me when I got that first job has really carried through. I think it's like a fundamental thing, but it is it is a little bit zen, right? Because we we don't have a lot of active control over these things, but there's so much we can do to make sure that generally over time, directionally, we're kind of going in the direction we want. The other thing that was really interesting about working there was the the way the slush pile of sort of portfolios is just a complete waste of time. So a funny story is that when I was there, I'd probably been there for two or three months and I was, you know, on very good terms with the art director there and he was a great guy and we really sort of gelled on a lot of sort of basic 2D stuff. He was a really sort of passionate 2D artist as well and again, you know, I still talk to him to this day and, uh, you know, he was going through folios and, uh, you know, he was like doing it on his lunch break. So literally like sandwich in one hand going through like portfolios with the other and there was a giant box. And, uh, you know, I sort of went up and I was talking to him, hey, how you going? What are you doing? He's like looking at folios and he was obviously not enjoying this process, right? Which um, I think if you've ever looked at folios, you can totally relate to. If you, your folio is in that box, it is the most terrifying thing to conceive of ever that like this is how these things are being treated. But no one wants to be there. No one wants to be looking at these folios. 99.999% of them are not very good. They're not at the stage where they, the people could be employable. And there's so many of them. And I th- sort of jokingly said, oh, I'll do that for you. Uh, and he said, okay. <laughs> so that gives you a bit of an example of like the degree to which the slush pile of portfolios is being assessed, right? It could literally be anyone off the street, um, you know, just sort of looking through those and just sort of filtering them out. So, you know, it really, I'm someone as an artist who believes in the idea of kind of build it and they will come. Although it has been said so many times that that is a bad strategy, but the concept that like, if you do good work, that good things will happen to you. And look, that's a video for another day. I think it's very nuanced and complicated um, about like those strategies. But I want to believe that like if you have really good work and you put it, you know, and you send your folio in that people are going to notice and they're going to call you up. But, you know, you can see from my journey and again, what I hear from a lot of other people, because most of my friends work in games or creative professions, they all do these things. They all have their own story. I know all their stories. You know, it really is much more about the old school networking, which is funny because that's the advice that I got given really early on, right? It's it's not about what you know, it's like who you know. And I'm like, no, no, that can't be true. It's about your skill, right? The raw, the raw artistic ability. And um, yeah, I think it is different now the way that we connect with other individuals and you get your name out there and you do the networking. A lot of it is more social media based, but it does really seem that 
the way these connections happen and someone notices you and you know you get on their radar and someone who's an art director or in a hiring position or someone who's going to recommend you to their art director it is really old school it's just about networking meeting people and putting your best foot forward and i feel like again that's kind of what i did in my sort of goofy way back in the day you know, the folio that I had would not get me a job anywhere on earth right now. But, um, you know, I think it's really interesting to see that I, I feel like those strategies persist, you know, despite the fact that you can, you know, have so many more job opportunities that are advertised. I think a lot of these things actually happen through word of mouth and someone who knows you and knows someone who's hiring connecting you up. For me, it was because my aunt was dating a Ukrainian musician who was good friends with a Ukrainian guy working as a 3D modeler. And I think now, although maybe that's not the sort of thing that's going to happen, nevertheless, it is really a matter of sort of putting your work out there and, you know, showing that you're excited and keen about doing a particular thing. And I think, you know, you will make connections with people and it's those connections which will turn into other connections. A lot of what people are after is just knowing, is this person crazy or not? Is there a decent human being on the other end of this folio? That counts for a huge, huge amount. Going through those slush pile of portfolios, they, it is really hard to communicate who you are in that way. And again, some little bit of networking or someone putting in a good word for you counts for an absolutely huge amount. I've heard that a lot of big studios will actually do very, very intensive interview periods, right? I got like probably a half hour or an hour interview. Um, you know, I've known people who've worked for big AAA game studios who do a one day or two day interview process where basically you just hang out with everyone you're going to be working with and they just get to know you and they, you know, figure out whether you're all going to gel. It's not about whether you're good enough because a lot of people kind of have a skill that's like, look, it's good enough. You'll be able to figure it out. Um, we're all sort of motivated, but so much of it about is, is are you going to fit into the team? Do you work well together, right? Do you like, you know, does the team who's going to be working with you, do they, do they like you? So again, so much of this is about who you are and, you know, how friendly and easy you are to get along with or whatever it is. Um, it's really important not to discount that. The other thing that I think is really interesting that I noticed back in the day is that as I was saying early on, the reason I underline this is that it really did feel like this was a weird kind of other species of human, this professional video game artist people. And I felt very estranged and different from them when I was, you know, not working and I'd never sort of seen the inside or done any sort of professional jobs. But look, these are all just people, right? They were all just people there. Um, some of them were good at some things, some of them were bad at other things. And look, you know, there was nothing mystical about it. All these companies, you know, from the top to the bottom are just full of everyday people who, you know, are trying their best to make good products. A big part of what they're actually after is interesting people to work with so that when you are talking and sharing art with each other and, you know, sort of, you know, sharing in this sort of general artistic experience, you know, hey, look at this art book, look at this toy I bought, look at this thing. Hey, have you seen this thing? You know, just having someone there who you really gel with visually on a visual level um, and a personality level is so, so important because that's, you know, what we spend most of our time doing. The number one super simple bro level takeaway that I had here is really basic. The gaming industry is super freaking volatile. If we look at the doing takeaways, like what did I actually do to try and, you know, learn from this situation? I think that 
it really lit a fire under me to try and build some kind of career that was isolated from that type of thing. I was working in Australia, obviously, as I said, and one of the things that happened and a big reason, I think, for the project drop and these companies getting put out of business is that when I was working initially, there was a time where the Australian US dollar exchange rate was very favorable to the American capital. So basically, they were getting um, you know people from Australia at you know half price. So, you know, you can think about cost of living, etc. Basically, you know, you could get two Australian workers for the price of one American worker, let's say. And I think that fueled a lot of setting up of these studios, getting these uh, publishing deals. And, you know, in the you know early 2000s, the late 90s, there was, you know, quite a large number of, you know, pretty decent, um, interesting looking AAA game studios in Australia. And, you know, in the mid 2000s, you know, there was more, there's actually quite a lot of, you know, really interesting tech that kind of came out of Australia, there was a lot of possibility. And I think it's just that the exchange rate kind of killed it, because the main reason a lot of that money was flowing into Australia was just based on, you know, what you could get for the money in terms of English speaking people um, who had like similar culture. Again, this was earlier days of the internet. Um, you know, the systems we have in place to work internationally were kind of just not there as much. So, you know, this was a good opportunity. Um, and basically, yeah, what I saw is like as I progressed or as my skills got better and it became a situation where I'd sort of say, okay, now I can probably get there's more jobs in Australia. Um, my skills are better. My chance of like getting a job in Australia has increased. And that's really what I thought I was going to do. But I kind of just saw all of that just crumbling away beneath me. Um, and again, if you're a student of Australian game development, you know that basically all of these big AAA game studios that had hundreds of people. I mean, there was one, um, I think that had like 400 people in it, which was a massive studio at the time. I think Ratback had 70 and that was really big at the time time these days like you know a triple a game studio needs like at least a few hundred people working in it but at the time again you know um, a single game might have you know 30 or 40 developers and, and people working on it maybe so anyway what i kind of decided to do is uh, again you know the, the the times were very uncertain i thought like maybe that was a good vector to go like keep working in games that didn't really work out at all so i got even more um, I guess sort of skittish when it came to that to the point where again what I was really trying to do was build a freelance career that was diversified because di diversification is one of the best sort of you know sort of financial general strategies to kind of avoid you know getting hit by a big um, upset like that like a studio shutting down out of nowhere right if that's your in your only chance of, of employment then you're in big trouble so and again a lot of the other people who were in Adelaide kind of just never worked in games again because there wasn't another big studio and they couldn't move so again really interesting to see how this stuff happened but again I tried to diversify I tried to go freelance and I, I tried to kind of almost like my goal was kind of to be paid in three different currencies um, and to just have different projects on the go and I kind of done that for a long time um, and, uh, you know, in terms of like not getting fired and, and losing my entire job in one go, that's been pretty successful. So that's sort of something that I worked in. It's one of the reasons I was really drawn to French comics from a, 
career standpoint is, you know, besides me just wanting to do it, there was, you know, the fact that like, it's actually a good idea. You know, I was like, I, I have opportunity to get paid in euros, uh, US dollars and Australian dollars. So that might be very pragmatic, but you know, that's the kind of thing I really took away from this experience. Um, just seeing how volatile, um, and you know, up for disruption your life is when one of these studios just closes. The other thing that's a little bit more amorphous, which again, if you're a student of this show, you will know I am really into is like sort of vague advice. I think the number one thing that I found that really helps me survive in this type of industry and, and deal with this is the idea of improvisation, of improv, of literal acting improv as a metaphor for how we can best deal with these projects. Because it's not just, I mean, as a freelancer, often I'm having to work on different projects, you know, at one time or, you know, one will just end and then another thing will start. It's really important to be able to get fully invested in these projects, to really 100% put all your energy and focus into whatever you're working on. And then when it disappears, to be able to disengage and go do something else. And I've talked about this as well before in terms of concept art. I think concept art is the same. You need to really understand what the brief is that you're working on right now. Really, really go and focus on it. Put all your energy into it. And then when the brief changes, because someone says, oh, we're doing something new now. We thought we were doing this. Now we're doing this. It's really important to be able to disengage with whatever you were doing and re-engage with what, what you are doing now. And I think the, the concept of improvisation, where again, you're doing one thing, someone comes onto the stage, they change it, and then you have to kind of immediately just go with the new thing. Um, that kind of improvisational acting, I think, is like a super good metaphor for how I sort of approach these things now, where, again, I really try and understand that, look, in order to be successful, in order to do justice to the projects I'm working on, every single thing I do, I have to believe in it 100%. I have to live and breathe this thing, no matter what it is, no matter how small or big the job is, you have to fully, fully put everything and then when it ends, you just have to completely forget about it and go do something else. It's such a hard thing to work with. And I think that's something that I really, you know, learned early on because I was so invested in that job. I put everything into like all my eggs were in that basket, right? I was like, I'm a rat bagger now, right? You know, I've got this thing. This is my identity. And then when it dies, I was like, ah, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to be like a, a game artist, right? You know, a professional game artist, concept artist, you know, and all the jobs kind of fell out. And so, again, just that idea of being able to deal with that and, and not let it allow, not let it upset your just general sort of, you know, vibe, I think is really, really important. And I think the more we can do that as artists working in these very, very rough waters um, or game development and, and film development, etc. The more you can do that, the more fun you have. On a similar line, I think if we look at this from a philosophical, spiritual point of view, again, I think it is easy to get jaded um, and look at this kind of video game scenario as like, uh, you know, like a, a real, you know, it's a real bummer, right? It's a real problem. Like, ah, you know, this is terrible. These industries are so volatile and, you know, like they are, it's so hard to get a job in games and then it's so hard to keep a job in games. And, you know, like there's some of these studios that have been around for like decades and, you know, people have been working in them for decades and, you know, they're sort of still there having fun. There's other people who, you know, haven't had the same job for more than a few years years. It really depends. A lot of it depends on what you want. But, you know, I really have come to see that, like, I think, you know, it is just 
that type of industry. It is just a volatile industry. It changes really fast. It's very, you know, open to disruption, to change. It's very easy for these companies to become outdated. Um, and, you know, that's just kind of part of the situation. You know, one of the best experiences I had was, you know, working with a very new, fresh gunfire games that had just, you know, the people there, I think, from my understanding very vaguely, is they just come from a similar thing where they were working at uh, like sort of vigil games and, you know, making uh, the sort of uh, Darksiders game. And, uh, you know, I was a huge fan of that. I was a huge fan of Joe Mad and, you know, his comic book style and battle chases. And when he got into games, I was like, oh, this is so cool. These games are cool. And, you know, then I think they got bought by THQ and then THQ got liquidated and they didn't get sold. And, you know, these they, all these studios crumbled. But, you know, then Gunfire Games was born and Airship Syndicate was born. And now you have like two really good sort of studios creating awesome work. And, you know, working with those, um, you know, people at Gunfire was really, really good and really rewarding. So, yeah, chaos and volatility suck. But, you know, I think ultimately we grow stronger. We learn and such is life. All right. So I think that's probably the end of this story and all we have time for on this particular episode. Let me know if this one was interesting. Again, I feel a bit weird because it's just all about me, but hopefully this kind of journey and me sort of telling the story can at least give you a little bit of entertainment. Maybe if you have been working in games, let me know in the comments below whether this stuff resonates with you. I'm sure some of it does. And again, I think the more that people share stories about these sort of things, then I feel like it really does help people who are, you know, coming up and trying to think about getting jobs and what that's going to be like. I think that first job is so stressful, such a weird experience. Um, and again, I've sort of walked through that with a lot of sort of young students who, you know, have graduated um, and, you know, started to get jobs. And I know it's a big stressful time. So hopefully, you know, me sharing my chaotic story can uh, give you a little bit of insight. And if your story is chaotic, uh, it can let you know that, you know, that's okay. And uh, again, you know, if you get a job and then you get fired six months later and you think the world is ending, uh, maybe again, my story can, uh, you know, give you a little bit of solace. Anyway, catch around in the next one.